News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever heard of the poem, The Prophet? Well, you should have. It was published a hundred years ago. Book of poetry that became a bestseller and has continued to sell millions of copies, and it's been translated into dozens of languages. Despite all of that, its author, Khalil Gibran, isn't very well known in the English-speaking world. So why is that? And what is so significant about the prophet? We're going to learn right now, actually. Gus Mitchell is a freelance writer and contributor for JSTOR Daily who has written about this and joins us now. Gus, thanks for being here. Thank you. Why did you write about the prophet? I had always heard about it uh, vaguely as a sort of more of a title, really, and I would always forget who the author was. And eventually, uh, I sort of, I I came around to reading it. I knew that it was very popular, had sold millions and millions of copies, uh, and also vaguely had a kind of reputation for being something, you know, a bit, uh, a bit sort of populist in the, in the bad sense, you know, as in sort of basic or simple or sort of popular poetry in the, in the sort of negative sense that some people might take that, um, and I wanted to sort of see what it was like. So I, I, I read it and became very, very interested in how something that has meant so much to so many millions of people also is, uh, is disparaged by, if you like, the, the literary establishment at the same time, which, which I always find interesting. And obviously today that, that continues in all sorts of realms of literature too. Why do you think the prophet, though, endures? What was it? What is it that you think people continue to find fascinating about it? I think what people, beginning in 1923 when it was published uh, in New York, um, and it was sort of a a word of mouth phenomenon, really, um, from the beginning. Uh, I think what they found in it in the beginning was something that spoke to the time where, you know, traditional religion, organized religion, uh, Christianity, obviously, in, in, in the United States, primarily was sort of beginning to sort of loosen its social bonds a little bit and its, its hold over people's, it, people's lives. That was sort of beginning in, in the 20th century. And I think people were hungry for something a bit more uh, that spoke to them directly and as individuals and maybe maybe made a less specific kind of demand on them, but that still spoke to that hunger for something that felt deep and eternal and moral and uh, that gave you some sort of guidance or that sort of showed a kind of inner light to you as to how you should live your life. Um, and I think that's kind of continued. I mean, it became more and more popular Throughout the 1930s, it was a uh, armed services poetry book in World War II. It was distributed to soldiers, um, and it's sort of written in all of these aphorisms and in, in these basically these parables, uh, which is uh, the form of the book is that there's this prophet who's introduced called Al Mustafa, who is uh, leaving this island, which is not his homeland. He's going back to his homeland, and, and the people ask him to share his wisdom, and, and it's written in the forms of these little sayings which is very digestible so it was very you know you could pick it up and read just one or two and really get a sense of hit of something if you like a sense of oh an interesting insight or a paradox it's very paradoxically written so Gibran is always saying that you know to be uh, to, to be happily married you must cultivate a kind of distance between each other and allow separation and, and allow your own space we would say now and that you know uh, that if um, that that love is also you know by its nature hard as well as you know blissful, and so he's always saying that things are also contain their opposite. Um, and so when I read that, that that was partly what what I I actually did find did ring true, and I think rings true in in all sorts of spiritual traditions. Um, it's kind of what he was drawing on. So he was born a Maronite Christian in Lebanon in 1883. And so he absorbed, you know, Islam and including, you know, mystical side of Islam, Sufism, as well as Christianity being influenced by the King James Bible. And uh, <clears throat> when, when the sort of 1960s got going, 
and people were, you know, really sort of dropping out of all sorts of uh, traditional ways of thinking and believing, including, you know, uh, again, just talking about uh, the U.S., where it really became very, very popular. Uh, you know, Protestant Christianity wasps, you know, dropping out and, and uh, taking acid and trying all sorts of, you know, new sorts of uh, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, all that sort of stuff that leads into the new age. Uh, what we think of the new age is, as as has descended today as, as a kind of, you know, melange of different spiritualities. And we sort of pick and choose, guided by the inner self and, and our, our sense of what's right for us. That's kind of what a lot of contemporary spirituality in, in different forms is. Um, and I, I think that's, it, it presaged a lot of that. Right. Book. It's interesting, though, that you, this book is so, there's so many copies out there. It's so well known, as you say, it has such a place in the last 100 years. And yet we don't really know a whole lot about the author, do we? Like, how, how well known is he in the English-speaking world? Yeah, well, everyone my age that I, um, that I, asked, I asked about him, and, uh, you know, I'm under 30, and everyone I asked uh, had never heard of him or vaguely knew you know, had vaguely heard of the book, but didn't know anything about him. And I think, I think that's kind of always been the case. Um, by, I think, I think from what I, I've gathered, you know, people will take the book in a way like, like he probably intended, like a, like a, a sort of book written by a, a you know, a, a prophet of old, a sort of someone who we've, whose name we've forgotten, like the people who wrote the Bible or, you know, all sorts of other sacred scriptures. The, there's, there's, the, the importance, I think, for him was to try and communicate his message almost as though it could have been written by anyone. And I think that was probably part of his goal was to, to try and spread what he wanted to say as widely as possible, disseminate it among different kinds of people. And therefore, the identity of the author, which is actually very specific, you know, he, he comes out of Lebanon, of, of, of the Arab world and the Ottoman Empire at the time, of Christianity, of uh, of, as a, you know, moved to the United States as an immigrant um, and, you know, uh, had had a very sort of, um, I suppose you'd say, you know, a very split background and, and a lot of um, a lot of different influences went into his work. And, and he was he was, I think, always marking himself and perceiving himself as sort of an other, an outsider speaking mm-hmm. to a society that that didn't really, uh, I think at the time, definitely didn't know what to do do with him. And in a sense, probably still doesn't because I think he was, uh, he, he was very much um, trying to synthesize different things. You know, he was influenced by modern art, but also by, you know, ancient religions and diverse religions. And uh, I think it's almost more, it's all more immediately tempting maybe to readers. He was so good at doing this, this kind of, you know, invisible voice in a sense by synthesizing a lot of the book is, is sort of synthesizing the language of the King James Bible with maybe some more modern poetry like Whitman and, and things like that. Um, and the rhythms of it are very much hmm. sort of Whitman and the Bible. And I think, he, uh, yeah, it, 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 and Whitman also obviously has this sort of universal I voice that he right. sort of tries to disappear behind. And so that's kind of what he was doing, I think, as well. I think you've certainly... So it was intentional, uh, in a sense. You've certainly piqued a lot of interest in this today. I have a feeling some of us are going to have to go look this up and learn more about it. But, Gus, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thank you. That's Gus Mitchell. Gus is a freelance writer and contributor for JSTOR Daily, where he's been writing about the poem The Prophet. It came out 100 years ago. There's something like 100 million copies of it in print, and yet... The prophet and the author, Khalil Gibran, not as well known in the English-speaking world as elsewhere. So certainly worth learning about. This is Mornings with Simi. That's what you need to hear on a Monday morning, isn't it? Let's ask our Scott Shantz about that. Is that not the perfect Monday morning song, Scott? It's up there. It's good. I might put Fight for Your Right in there as well. Oh, uh, Beastie Boys. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's Absol- a good one. Uh, Fight for Your Right. Uh, Twisted Sister. We're not going to take it. Yeah, that's good. Have I ever told you the story that that's the song where um, my mom, like, you know, you always think about the time that when your parents look at you, like, what are you listening to? Right. When you realize that you and your parents are just completely on opposite sides when it comes to music. 
that was the song oh, that perfect. did it for myself and yeah. my mother. Yes. She saw the video is what it was for Twisted Sisters. We're not going to take it. You know, Dee Snyder, full, yes, yes. Yeah. full of makeup. And she was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's uh, all kids need to have that with their parents at some yeah, point. Yeah. Right. And that's uh, you have to have that. It's, I had that with my parents. I think it was probably with Nirvana that, that my parents were like, mm. what even is this? Uh, to smells like teen spirit. And of course, my that's kids so will great. have it for something else. You oh, know? absolutely. So, yeah, that moment course. will come. Yeah. Absolutely where I'm like, what children. even is this garbage that you're listening to? Yeah, there is that moment for sure. I, for I think for my generation, definitely was music videos because that was something that our parents had right. no. And you know, she had that too because she loved the Beatles, and her parents did not understand her love of right. the Beatles, and she was always kind of was so proud of that, but then did not that did not translate when it came time so, to to me. Did you have this with your kids? What was the? I'm trying to think, and I don't remember. Yeah, your because your kids are older. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what it was that they listened to where I said, I don't get it. I'm sure there was. I'll go home and ask them. They'll remind me. They love to remind me of my faults and foibles. (laughs) So I'm sure they have a list and I'll go home and find out. Uh, We are talking this morning about things that are getting more expensive. Oh my gosh. Like everything. Uh, Everything. Yeah. uh, Well, one of the ones that you mentioned, it's more expensive than crude oil, actually. And this is insane. And this is affecting my household for sure. Olive oil. Yeah. yeah, It's doubled in price, more than doubled in price over the last year. And uh, that's because of uh, growing conditions, extreme weather, the tip crops in parts of Europe where they grow a ton of olive oil. And so it's been harder to produce. And of course, then that, you know, the supply, all of, and then it just trickles down to the person at the end, which is us. And olive oil is just, it, the price is insane. It is crazy. It's gotten so expensive. And at the same time, you know, we have been taught to be selective about our olive oil yes. to make sure that we are picking the right kind of olive oil, that it's not adulterated, that it's a cold first press. All, and all of that means that we were buying pricey olive oil. Now we're now it's it's stratospheric and you can't even afford it anymore because half of the crop was wiped out in Spain. Yeah, exactly. And they're looking at sort of uh, predictions for the next harvest and it's not forecast to get any better, unfortunately. So it's one of those things. And we put, at least in my household, we put olive oil on everything. Like all of our salad dressings are made out of olive oil. Uh, it's used in just like any, I, I feel like anytime we have a meal, there's like bread that you dip in it that just, it's, we use it a lot, I feel like. I've, I, I agree, because in my house we use a lot of olive oil too, but I think oil, cooking oil in general has gotten a bit pricey. Um, vegetable oil is also you know, expensive, but not as expensive as olive oil. But a lot of people now use um, avocado oil. We use that too, yeah. Which is, I mean, that's pricey. That was pricey to begin with. Yeah. It's even getting more pricey. And I know many people like using grapeseed oil. If okay. you like to fry that like grapeseed oil, Karen McSherry always taught me this, that that is the high smoking point oil, that that's a really good kind of frying Okay, oil. good yeah. to know. So my question, anytime one of these things comes up, it's like, well, are you going to make any changes? Because it, like, let's say it was crude oil and the cost of gas. You have to buy gas. We all have to buy gas. It's how we get around. And you just kind of accept it. You know, that's kind of how my parents taught me. There's no point to complaining about it. You're going to spend the money. Just go and get it. But are you going to change? Like in your house, are you going to change the way that you guys cook, change the way that you, what, what foods you're eating because of the cost of, of like in our house, we, we definitely are making changes. Yeah. I think at some point that does happen and it happens, you know, you, you, you don't think about it when you've got the full container sitting there because right. you bought it like a m- couple months ago, but when you go to buy it again, so it's hard to say in the, in the moment you're like, no, I'm not going, I love this stuff. And then you go grocery shopping and you see the price and you think, well, do I need the extra virgin or can right. I just get the virgin olive oil? Do I need the organic? No, I don't need the organic. I'll just, you know, you start to make those choices. Yeah, absolutely. And everybody is finding sort of ways to make those little, uh, those little sacrifices because uh, I mean, all Ultimately, yes, you can make it with like just the regular non-fancy, sure. you know, you can, you can get by, but yeah, we all have to find ways to, to sort of trim down. Will you be the, trimming down world. your skiing this year because of that expense? I was talking about this with John yeah. Strait earlier. The Whistler prices. Yeah. I'm, we're not making any change. We're going skiing this year. Like we got my daughter into skiing last year at Whistler and it was the best winter that I've had in years. And, uh, it's already been paid for. So we're going, we buy early the season's pass for lessons for her and I buy a pass for myself. And once you 
break it down over the days, it's $84 a day. Right. So that's what I'm but paying. you have to do what Scott did, and that is buy early, yes. buy quickly, and do the math on whether or not it's worth it for your family. Yeah, I'll sacrifice all of the olive oil. I'll, eat, I'll be olive oil free if it means I can go skiing. Those are the choices that families are making out there. <laughs> Scott's one of them. Thank you for that, Scott. Sure. What about you? This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer on this Monday morning. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. Vaughn, do you hand out Halloween candy at your house? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Do you get a lot of kids? We have to get the uh, peanut-free stuff because our daughter has the famous peanut allergy, so we don't support anybody who doesn't take those steps. That's a good idea. Very good. But do you get a lot of kids at your house? Uh, it really varies up and down. Our neighborhood here in Victoria, because it's not a through street or it's got a street with a jog in it, uh, people used to drop their children off here. Yeah. It was very safe and, uh, you know, and it was great. We love it. But it fluctuates up and down, down now. And we don't know what it's going to be like uh, this year, you know, first year post-pandemic or, well, maybe it isn't post-pandemic, but uh, it's varied. You know, we've had... Um, Pretty much almost run out of candy through, yeah. uh, we got to take all the stuff in and feed it to the legislative press gallery because we don't want to ruin our own teeth. So that's <laughs> that's the kind of year. It's really wild up and down. That's funny. I ran out last year. I had to turn the lights out last year. I had so many oh, kids. I, I load up and I load up. I think I had probably... I had in excess of 100 children last year, yeah, so, right. so much. Anyway, lots to talk about this morning. So what's going to be happening at the legislature? We have new legislation coming today. Yes, legislation tabled at 10 a.m., and then the Premier will have a news conference at 10.30 to tell us all about it and ask answer questions. Uh, the topic is expediting recognition in B.C. for the credentials of internationally educated professionals. So this isn't just doctors and nurses and healthcare workers, although that's included, but the government's made it clear they're looking at other areas where we have a huge shortage of professionals, social workers, and things like that. So the legislation is supposed to make it easier to navigate the system of recognition here in BC uh, we'll see how they're going to do that because, Simi, as you know, the problem of recognition of credentials isn't just here in British Columbia. No, it is not. But you had some really egregious examples of problems with this. Yeah, the Premier did sort of an advancer on where he's headed on this and why he's headed on this with a town hall meeting at Quantlin College in Surrey, uh, two weeks ago. And he had, they had, the New Democrats had uh, people stand up and talk about their actual experiences. And there were some, like they were very sobering. They, they persuaded you there's a real problem here. There's a woman, uh, a dentist who s- spent $50,000 and three years trying to get to practice dentistry here in British Columbia. She still wasn't approved. She lists this long runaround she went. Uh, One of the cabinet ministers on this said he'd uh, come across a case of a Hong Kong uh, social worker, social worker from Hong Kong, fully credentialed, graduate of the London School of Economics, so lived and worked in the UK, spent a long, long time here trying to get to practice social work here in BC. And the fellow reported to the minister that um, he was having to pass an English proficiency test every year while he waited, even though, as the minister said, his English wasn't getting any worse. In fact, it was getting better because he was working here in BC, just not what he was trained for. So there were a lot of stories. The premier told one that he'd run across himself when he was seeking the leadership of the NDP last year of a of a doctor who was driving taxi out in the Fraser Valley. I, you know, there are so many examples of this. They are are just appalling when you consider how much of a shortage we have of trained professionals. And yet, I think Simi, despite the government's good intentions, the thing we'll be looking for today is. How does this help when the problem is not exclusively provincial? Right, because we know that some of these regulations are federal. 
federal government, immigration laws, uh, proving that we need the credentials, and then professional associations. So one of the people that talked at the town hall meeting said she'd uh, she'd gone through the provincial association and discovered she also needed to go through the federal the the federal association for her profession, and she couldn't even get them on the phone or get them to answer an email. Like there is, there are huge obstacles in the way. I wish the government good luck, and obviously you need to fix the provincial system, but it's a standard problem for British Columbia. You know, Ottawa won't even listen. So. Whether or not this is really going to expedite approval, I think we'll be stuck lefting, left to wait and see. And we will have more to talk about, too, including talking about Surrey, because this really is the never-ending saga, isn't it? <laughs> you know, Simi, there was a moment there after the government introduced the legislation to impose its decision on Surrey where we thought, you know what, Uh, maybe there is a bit of light at the end of the tunnel here. The premier said it's over, you know, the battle over whether or not it's going to be Surrey Policing Services or RCMP. And the premier not only said it's over, but he said, you know, um, Brenda Locke, mayor of Surrey, has raised some good issues and we're going to be there at the table to work with her. And he even dropped a fairly strong hint that the province uh, might come to the table with more money than $150 million dollars over five years that it was already offering. Well, uh, yes, Uh, they're now walking that back. Mike Farnworth, public safety minister, says Brendelock has to obey the law, and he also says no more money. $150 million is it. The province is not coming to the table with more money. And I have to say, Simi, the problem that the New Democrats have with that. They say the media coverage misinterpreted oh, what did the Premier we? said. But we've got it on tape. And with provincial politicians, especially on an issue like this, you save your tape. So the exchange that happened with the Premier was the Premier was asked, um, is it possible that the province would be willing to put more money on the table to settle this thing? And David Eby said, quote, The province has committed to Surrey that we will support them. We understand there are additional costs here, and we will support them in that. I take that as a pretty strong hint that Evie was saying, yeah, we're coming to the table and we're open to the idea of more money. But Farnworth now says that was all misinterpreted. The Premier's office says, oh, no, the media, you misinterpreted. Well, unfortunately, gang, this one is on tape. You want to walk it back, that's fine, but it is not going to improve the climate dealing with Surrey. And in the meantime, though, I'm sure, you know, people in charge in Surrey, like Mayor Brenda Locke, heard that and thought, aha. Yeah. So she also did interviews last week, uh, you know, and she gets asked about, uh, so the, by the numbers, the province says it's offering $150 million over five years. Uh, Surrey says their estimate is almost the cost of transitions, almost $500 million over 10 years. So Locke gets ans- asked, okay, so if the province comes up with the full amount, is that good enough? Well, Locke understands bargaining too. She says... Look, what we want the province to do, since they're imposing the Surrey police force on Surrey, she wants the province, the city wants the province, to indemnify Surrey against all transitional costs. So we don't have a tax notice going out to Surrey people two years from now or three years from now saying, oh, by the way, it ended up costing us a lot more than we thought, and you folks are going to have to pick it up in your property taxes. I mean, that's the real fight here politically is, yes, there's ego, and yes, there's powers and all that interpretation. But the real fight is, who is going to take the heat for sticking Surrey taxpayers with the cost of transition when... Simi, we don't know the full cost of transition. These numbers are guesses. 
and they haven't even shared all of their reports with us, so we're ending up having to take each side's word on what it's really going to cost. But if that's what Surrey wants, then why doesn't Surrey sit down behind closed doors with the provincial government and say, this is what we want? Because at this point, they might get it if they stop just saying it in public and embarrassing the government. Well, it did sound kind of encouraging there for a few days. But now I think you look at what Farmer said, no more money and obey the law. That doesn't sound to me like a negotiation. That sounds like an ultimatum. And Is it too uh, far gone, maybe? Too far gone at this point? Bad blood? That could be it, Simi. And as I said, I think at the end of the day, it's about who's going to eat the political heat for what this is going to cost. And there's plenty of room to go around and lots of blame. But I'll just say this. The premier did not help matters last week by making it sound like the province was open to providing additional funding on transition, and then the government turns around and the public safety minister and says, no, no, no more money, nothing, forget it, you know, just do it. I, the, you're right, Simi, it is wrong on an issue like this to negotiate in public, and that's what they're doing, and the relationship is pretty bad. I sort of went over the comments of Locke and EB and Farmworth last week, and I went... You know what? I hate to give him another plug, but <laughs> this does I know sound, it's coming. This does I sound like a job for Vince Reddy. I've been accused of taking a cut of his yeah. hourly fee, but really seriously, this thing needs independent adjudication. These two sides are the relationship between them is just so poisoned now that I don't know if they came to the table, it would even do any good. You know, and after you've talked about Vince Reddy, and we know he's been around, he's kind of like the master of settling these things. We've tried so hard, Vaughn, to get him to come on the show and just talk about his secrets. How do you do this? How do you get, like, what are your secrets to mediating? Just, you know, pass on the information. Nope. He's so um, discreet that he won't yes. even do that. Yeah, like, that's how he good he is. He is. <laughs> the- the, he is very discreet. Uh, and uh, the other thing is, I, I think there's, there's two things there. One is his own reputation. He, he has an impeccable reputation for dealing with the matter at hand. He doesn't take sides. He simply, first of all, gets you talking, finds out what your positions are, often sends you to separate rooms, and then he, he goes back and forth and he says, look, here's where the other side might move. Here's where they won't move. Where will you move? And, and really, that's what it is, right? And you need the two sides to want to settle and go forward. And you need the two sides to be willing to compromise on some things in order to get the other things they want. So that's getting to yes. Uh, having said that, you know, I do think his own reputation helps him a lot. Yeah. Because he is known for getting results and he's known for afterward people saying, you know what, Vince Reddy is a fair negotiator. He helps both sides. And he keeps it to himself, right? Yes. Nothing yes, gets out. Good. He's yeah. very yeah, subtle, very, yeah. very discreet. Uh, Vaughn, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> we'll find out what happens now. That's Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you heard about this latest big data breach? The thing is, you may have seen the headline earlier this month that 23andMe experienced a significant data breach, as it was called. Well, maybe you looked at that and figured, oh, well, I've never used them, so it doesn't affect me. Turns out that is not necessarily the case, but it's because it's people who don't necessarily use the service who could also be impacted by this data breach. Confused? I know I was too when I saw that. So let's find out more about that and the impact of data breaches like this. Ignacio Cafone is with us now, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in Artificial Intelligence Law and Data Governance at McGill University. Also, Ignacio has written a book, The Privacy Fallacy, which comes out next month and joins us now to talk about that. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so what is so significant about this 23andMe data breach? The issue with the data breach is that genetic data, by its very nature, is never about only one person. If you submit your genetic data to a company, you're not only giving the company information about you, but you're also indirectly 
giving the company information about everyone that you're related to and shares part of that genetic data with you. So when there's a data breach to interfere in me, it not only has information about everyone that chose to send samples, but also everyone that in one way or another is related to them. And especially because in this case, hackers use this function called uh, related, uh, in which they could identify even by name some people that hadn't sent data to the company. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute here, Ignacio. So you're saying someone like me who would steer clear of all of this kind of stuff, who, you know, tries to stay off the internet as much as possible in terms of social media, even I could be impacted by this? Absolutely. If your sister or your cousin or your uncle sends data, they will have information about you. And this is highly risky information because it involves propensity to have certain diseases like Parkinson. It involves ancestry. And the thing is, while genetic data and this hack are a great example of this, this doesn't only happen with genetic data. We all the time send information from companies in ways that give information about others. We just don't think about it that much. Okay, this is interesting because like, I, I've heard a lot about this, but in terms of solving murder cases, right? We, right. We've seen this repeatedly now ever since the Golden State um, you know, killing happened and we heard about how they broke that with genetic genealogy, they call it. But this is like a, a kind of a wider net on that, isn't it? Yeah, it is quite wide. And the thing is, uh, the way that our protection systems are structured I mean, the main protection that we have regarding our privacy is companies have to ask us before they do something. But in a world where when they ask us something, we are also giving consent on behalf of others, then that protection breaks down. Because as you were saying, you can choose to never have social media, never engage with these companies. But just because other people that are similar to you in one way or another use it, then these companies have lots of information about you. Right. So if you identify yourself at any point as a relative of X and X is on 23andMe, there you go, link mate. Exactly. And is it only 23andMe if you don't have a Facebook account or an Instagram account, but lots of people of your gender, age group, and location have those accounts, then Instagram and Facebook have lots of information about what people with those demographics tend to act like, tend to like, so they infer through AI algorithms lots of information about you too. Okay, so how do we protect ourselves from this? Or is there even a law that would protect us from this? Uh, there could be laws that protect us from this if we change them a bit. So as we go through law reform in Canada right now with a bill that's being discussed in Parliament as we speak, then we need to think less about how do we get companies to ask people for permission? Because in the age of AI and in the age of connected data, that means very little. And more about what do we allow companies to do and what do we not allow companies to do? It turns out that keeping a hoard of genetic data that is not anonymized about, about a bunch of people is really risky. So when companies do something that is risky, we need some sort of protective measures and accountability measures that are independent of like what one person or another asked. Right. Ignacio, this is so typical of us, though, isn't it? Because there was this race to sign up for this because we thought, oh, cool, look at all the things it's going to tell me about myself, not realizing that that's exactly what they're going to make money off of. Yeah, and I get it. Uh, it is a cool service. It is cool to know. And we can't expect each consumer to think about all the impossible to predict risks that each data use has. That's why we should have stronger regulation so that people don't have to think about those things. And we do it in other scenarios too. We don't allow people to choose whether they want to go into a really cheap and risky roller coaster or a really safe and expensive one, but we allow them to do that with their data. That's a really good way of putting it. Because when you said cheap and risky roller coaster, I was like, no, we wouldn't allow that. Of course we wouldn't. Uh, now, <laughs> exactly. your book that you've got coming out is called The Privacy Fallacy. Let's just talk about that title there for a second, because there is no such thing really as privacy. Well, exactly. <laughs> and I call the book The Privacy Fallacy, because I noticed that we often see legislators and regulators saying that they really care about privacy. They really care about protecting people's privacy. But then the only thing that we see protections for is some specific negative consequences from privacy, like preventing insurance premiums from going up 
or preventing certain cases of discrimination. But most of the protections that we enact don't actually aim at protecting privacy. And eliminating some of the negative consequences that this has doesn't really do what politicians and policymakers say that they want to do, which is protect privacy. And that's the privacy fallacy. Right, but we have Thinking to do that, that we though. care about it, but they're not acting. Yeah, Ignacio, we, have we have to care. We have to care about this. Yeah. Right? But it's really difficult to care if you cannot predict the consequences. Okay, but we also don't have to put every single thing about our lives online, do we? That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we seem to like doing that, apparently. <laughs> we do like doing that. It would be good if we gave people a framework to be able to do that in a way that it stays. Okay, that I can agree with. Absolutely. Ignacio, thank you so much for the conversation this morning. Thank you very much. That's Ignacio Cafone, an associate professor in Canada Research Chair in Artificial Intelligence Law and Data Governance at McGill, author of a book called The Privacy Fallacy, which comes out next month. Yeah, we do need to be more circumspect about what we're putting out there on social media, but Ignacio is absolutely right. If we could, if there were rules that said, this is what you're allowed to put on the internet or this is what you should put on the internet, I think people would understand that better instead of just putting it all out there. And then you're at risk, not just for you, but for people in your family and your friends who even choose not to, as we just heard. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. The latest from Israel and Gaza this morning is that Israel says its soldiers have carried out what it calls a limited raid inside Gaza overnight. Israel says it's trying to find out where hostages are being held by Hamas. Meanwhile, airstrikes have continued as a third aid convoy is also now on its way to Gaza. Redmond Shannon, our European correspondent for Global News, has been following the events and joins us now with the latest. Hi, Redmond. Good morning, Simi. Okay, Redmond, let's start with this last Canadian evacuation flight from Israel, which is happening today. What can you tell us about that? Yes, well, uh, Foreign Minister Melanie Joly said that uh, this has been scaled down for now, the last flight leaving from Ben-Gurion uh, Airport today because uh, simply uh, the, of a reduced demand that the Canadians and Canadian permanent residents who wish to leave have more or less all, to, all left now. There is a Polaris jet on the ground there in Israel right now. That likely the last flight. There may be one later today as they go over and back to Athens, but that could very well be the last flight back 1,600 Canadians, permanent residents, and some other foreign nationals uh, with family connections uh, were brought out uh, on those jets over the past uh, week and a half or so. Okay, so what do we know then about these Israeli raids inside Gaza overnight? Yes, uh, Israeli Defense Forces say they carried out uh, another uh, limited raid overnight. Um, Two reasons that they say that they're doing this. One, to prepare for a ground invasion if and when that does occur. And secondly, to gather intelligence on the whereabouts uh, of the hostages. The number of hostages currently held, believed to be held, uh, is the Israeli number has now been revised up to 222, that despite the release of uh, two hostages in recent days. But uh, 222 is that number. Uh, Israel carried out a, a limited raid, it says, also on Sunday, in which it says one uh, member of the Israeli Defense Forces was killed. We don't have any idea what the number of casualties was on the uh, mass side or number of people killed within Gaza. But that's the Israeli side of things. The Israeli Defense Minister says the full invasion will be soon, but that this entire operation could take months. So what soon means could mean anything, uh, but uh, that's what uh, he said this morning from the Palestinian side. The Palestinian Health Ministry has upgraded its figures, uh, updated rather, its figures for the number of people killed, it says, inside Gaza since October 7th by uh, in Israeli airstrikes. It says that number is now more than 5,000 people killed in those airstrikes. Okay, and as we heard as well, there's a, another aid uh, convoy on its way into Gaza, but what is the latest on the humanitarian situation in that area that we know? Yes, uh, Simi, the third convoy uh, reportedly heading in with 20 trucks on Saturday, 14 or yesterday. We don't know exactly how many are going in today through the Rafa Gate uh, border point with Egypt, between Gaza and Egypt. Uh, the UN says hundreds 
are needed every day uh, to fulfill the needs of the 2 million people inside Gaza. It says this is just a drop in the ocean sending in uh, a dozen or two trucks a day. Um, the Red Cross says that the humanitarian situation inside Gaza is now what it says, uh, the, it's using the word catastrophic, uh, the lack uh, of availability of water, the obviously lack of electricity uh, and fuel is one of the very contentious things to be brought in because Israel uh, doesn't want fuel to be allowed in and get into the hands somehow of uh, militants. Uh, but uh, aid agencies say fuel is vital to power generators so that food can be produced, so that hospitals can be uh, kept running. Uh, and uh, the situation, it is without doubt very, very difficult for the two million people inside Gaza. Undoubtedly. Uh, Redmond, thank you so much for the update. Thank you, Sammy. Have a good day. Bye. That's Redmond Shannon, a European correspondent for Global News, following the unfolding situation this morning and throughout today involving Israel and the Gaza. So Israel does say its soldiers carried out a, they call it a limited raid inside Gaza overnight. They say they're trying to find out more about where the hostages are being held by Hamas. But the airstrikes have also continued. There is a third humanitarian convoy that over the weekend made its way into Gaza, but much more aid is needed. And so, of course, we will continue to follow the latest on that. Keep it tuned in right here for more. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of people don't like this time of year. I know I do, but I feel like sometimes I'm in the minority. And, and the reason for a lot of people is totally legit. I get that. It gets darker faster. It's not as bright outside. And that is something that affects people deeply. And our Scott Chance has been looking into that. Seasonal affective disorder is so real. I know so many people who are impacted by this. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely huge. And I also think that, Simi, because I like you, don't get affected by it as much. I do have mental health struggles like so many people do, but the the weather and the gray sky and stuff is not one of the things that gets me. And I think it's because I grew up here, but so many people who come to BC haven't really experienced the, the gloom, you know, of our winters. And I think it can really hit some people hard and have, and have an effect on people. And we keep hearing this term seasonal affective disorder or SAD as it's referred to. That's like the acronym, the short form for it. And it starts to kick up around now and is, yeah, probably going to last for several months. So I wanted to have a conversation about it and, you know, talk about it and, yeah. Uh, basically just understand more of what we can do to understand it and watch for it and also help people who might be suffering with it. So yeah, I spoke with uh, Dr. Michael Mack. He's a psychiatrist and sleep disorder specialist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And I started just by asking him, like, what even is SAD? Yeah, it's a condition uh, that's related to depressive symptoms. But instead of of being present uh, all year long, it's more associated with an onset uh, during uh, certain parts of the year. Uh, classically speaking, in Canada, it would be uh, the fall and winter. It affects 3 to 5% of Canadians. Uh, it's characterized by decreased uh, mood, uh, inability to enjoy things you like usually, poor sleep, uh, low energy, poor concentration, and uh, impaired appetite. And in most severe cases, it can lead to thoughts of suicide. Now, what's the difference between this, like the actual disorder that we're talking about, and people who just kind of, you know, they get the blues because summer's over, the days are shorter, uh, it's colder out, there's less fun activities to do outside because it's, it's raining or, you know, I think a lot of us kind of feel that when the weather changes. So how is, is sad different from just, you know, oh, it's a change of season? That's a great question. So the, the difference between uh, SAD and, let's say, seasonal blues is the fact that uh, in SAD, there's a dysfunction to your daily life. Like the symptoms uh, cause you to have problems at work, have problems with, uh, you know, spending time with the family. It has to cause you some sort of daytime dysfunction. If it doesn't, that's not to say it's not a problem, but it's just that it's, it's not as severe as uh, seasonal affective disorder. Seasonal blues affect up to a third of Canadians, where you know, people will talk about a decrease in mood, as you mentioned, you know, the changes in weather temperature and light uh, exposure. Um, and then there's another subset of people, 10 to 15% of Canadians, they actually have all those symptoms of SAD. So you know, decreased mood, uh, maybe uh, impairments in sleep and uh, appetite, uh, but that 
doesn't cause them dysfunction. So the same symptoms not causing dysfunction that affects 10 to 15% of Canadians. Hmm. Okay. And do you like, do you agree with it? This has kind of become more commonly talked about sort of more, I don't want to use the word accepted, but more, it, it, more people are comfortable sort of talking about it and see it as an issue. Do you, have you, have you noticed that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think, you know, it has to do with advocacy. I think there's a greater awareness of mental health conditions and people are more likely to talk about them. Whereas before, you know, when, when, uh, you have a challenge about you know uh, your emotions and things like that. People kind of just keep it inside. Yeah, totally. And I think that I agree with you. I think that's a fantastic thing. Like I know people who have sad or are affected by sad. And the idea that you know we've done all this advocacy. I, we're not there yet, but we're still you know talking about mental health awareness and those type of things. It's been a, a huge step forward. But I think there's still at least with sad it. Maybe it has to do with like the acronym, which I think is a great acronym, by the way. But people sort of uh, look at it as kind of like, oh, you're depressed because the weather, you know, and almost don't treat it as seriously as other mental health conditions, because I guess it it sort of feels like something that we all kind of deal with and it just affects people differently. Can you comment on that? Have you noticed any of that? Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, like... Uh, once again, it's all about educating people, right? Like uh, the the science behind uh, SAD as a condition is very robust. Uh, it has to do with the decreases in exposure to uh, sunlight and bright light uh, during fall and winter. So the science behind this condition is uh, rock solid. Uh, it's just a matter of getting you know uh, folks out there educated about it. Yeah, absolutely. And how how can we uh, support? people who suffer from this condition, or maybe if we're feeling like, you know, we're suffering from this condition or something similar to it ourselves, um, how can we combat this? Because, you know, like I live in Vancouver, uh, it's pretty gray here. We get a lot of rain. How, other than like getting on a plane to Mexico, what can we do? Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, if, so like, let's say if it's like a day where it's not overcast and there's some natural sunlight out, I would advocate for, uh, for folks to go outside, expose themselves to natural sunlight. Barring that, if we don't have that opportunity, uh, you know, you can invest in a seasonal affective disorder bright light. So those sad lights uh, that you can get from Amazon or Walmart or Costco, these lights have a minimum brightness of 10,000 lux. And this brightness uh, of the light, and if you expose yourself to this light for 30 minutes uh, or more daily, uh, has been shown to improve one's mood if you suffer from seasonal depression, uh, to the extent that the, the, the outcome is like taking an antidepressant medication. Hmm, yeah, and one of the things that I've heard about, maybe you could comment on this, is vitamin D, because we get vitamin D from the sun, right? Yeah, like uh, sunlight exposure allows your body to uh, metabolize and, and, and you know, to, to be able to absorb vitamin D. The thing is, is that uh, vitamin D by itself is, is, not, is, is not a treatment for seasonal Hmm. Bright light exposure is, but not uh, taking a supplement of vitamin D. This is all great information because we hear so much, so many things as people kind of talk about it uh, just randomly, you know. So it's great to get some actual information. If people feel like they might be um, sort of struggling with this or, or affected by this, is there a place they can go, like a resource or a website that that you want to mention? Um, I know you have a podcast. Something we can mention that uh, we can direct people to. Uh, I, I think if you uh, search the internet for CAMH, that's where I work, the Center for Addiction Mental Health, and seasonal depression, you'll see uh, a patient infographic uh, for uh, seasonal depression. It gives you some facts about it, uh, you know, and, and how to treat it. That's Dr. Michael Mack. He's a psychiatrist and sleep disorder specialist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. That website, again, CAMH.ca, and his podcast is called The Big Sleep. I've known, as I said, quite a few people who have had this. In fact, there was someone I used to work with who had the lamp, the seasonal affective disorder lamp, in the room. And this was like 20, this was 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And at the time, there was a lot of explaining that had to go with it. And there was skepticism, as you outlined there. But I saw the difference oh. in this person when they had that lamp there and, and just being in front of it for Absolutely. a certain period of time. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was interesting to sort of hear him talk, too, about that vitamin D thing, because I've heard that so mm-hmm. many times. Take vitamin D, take vitamin D, but it doesn't replace that light therapy that we all need. This is also why I find the debate over keeping daylight saving time always right. versus standard time 
fascinating because sure, you'll get an hour later in the evening, but mornings like this yeah. are going to be darker longer <laughs> as you wait for the light to come. And I think oh. getting started in your day is very challenging. Totally. Dropping the kids off for school in the dark Pitch is dark. just terrible. And that's not going to improve if, no. if we go to daylight saving time. So all sorts of great things for us to think about. Scott, thank you for that. No problem. This is Mornings with Simi. Still need to make transformations to the system. I am absolutely determined to make sure that we continue to make those improvements to keep all of our children safe. That is the Minister of Children and Family Development, Mitzi Dean, except we know that that's not, what, that's not what is happening, don't we? Because children are not being kept safe in the system. We have the horrific case where we know one child was beaten to death, another was critically injured. I mean, that did lead to jail sentences. But in audits that happened in the area to look into the files of caseworkers and social workers who'd worked there, we also find out that social work teams had not made any of the necessary visits to check on children in at least 14 foster care placements. Like we're talking no paperwork that was done at all. And this is an audit that came as a result of the horrific abuse and death of the two children in that Chilliwack home. So you can understand why a lot of people, including me, have kind of lost patience with this situation that we think this is just talk at this point and we need to see real and significant changes made at the ministry. And one of the other people who has been calling for that is our next guest. It's Adam Olson, BC Green Party MLA for Saanich North. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Now, why do you think a resignation at the very top here will make a difference? Well, you know, I think that uh, basically the, the point needs to be made that there's accountability in this ministry and uh, firing uh, frontline workers and, and blaming them for the, the failure of the ministry uh, and thinking you can just move along and, and there's nothing else to be seen there uh, is wrong. Uh, the BC NDP and their former uh, role as the um, members of the opposition uh, demanded exactly the same of the former minister under very, very similar circumstances. And what we see here is two sets of standards, one set of standards that they held uh, everybody else accountable and two, and one set of standards that they're prepared to, uh, that the BC NDP is prepared to hold themselves accountable to. The, rea- the reality is, is that unless the, the people in the ministry see that there's accountability and it lands at the feet of the minister and the minister's uh, senior staff in that ministry, the deputy minister and so on, uh, then it's just business as usual. And that's the message uh, that gets sent. And business as usual in this ministry is um, costing lives. And it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's absurd that this premier hasn't done anything. So you're like we're talking about trickle down, making sure that everyone on the front lines understands that everyone's job is at stake here. Uh, because what we saw in this audit, and I encourage people to read the story at tie.ca, is that they're not even doing basic paperwork. Did that shock you when you read that? Uh, I, I wish I could say that it that uh, stories like this shock me from this ministry, but it, it doesn't. This is uh, there is a, a level of systemic rot. Uh, in this ministry that um, continues to be uh, allowed to exist. Uh, I think that, um, yeah, absolutely, uh, the message needs to be sent that everybody uh, in the system is accountable, including a minister, Uh, a minister who has, to this date, only been prepared to be the, as I said in question period last week, the chief apologist for this ministry. Um, When you have have, um, ministry officials scrambling out to a house uh, to do a, a, a visit to find that it's inappropriate only after uh, the fact, that is, as, as you pointed out, wrong. You know? And so uh, that's what's allowed to continue to persist as long as there's nobody uh, being held accountable at the, at the highest levels here. And so, again, I, I think it's really important to point out that in their former lives, the BC NDP understood mm-hmm. the standards that needed to be set. And they, they, were, they were prepared to stand up and yell and scream about it uh, when they were in opposition. And they're totally uh, unprepared to hold themselves to that same standard. I mean, that is very and, true. I remember doing a lot of those stories, right? With report exactly. after report from the representative children and youth and nothing ever seems to change. That's, that's also my frustration with this too. Nothing ever seems to change. 
No, John Horgan said it himself, the minister is responsible. You know, when, when parents willfully neglect their children, the, the government steps in uh, and removes those children from care and uh, from the pe- care of those parents and then puts them into the care of the government. And when the government doesn't uh, t- uh, take the appropriate care for those children, when the government neglects those children, when the minister neglects those children, and now when the premier, without taking the actions that, uh, that he needs to take, is also neglecting those children, we have a real, real deeply seated problem in this, in this province. Uh, this ministry has been this way for decades. We need transformational change. The minister claims that that's what she's doing. However, she's not here to answer for it on the radio. She's not here to answer for it other than when she gets asked uh, in question period. Uh, and um, and so there's a, a complete and total lack of leadership here. How do we create that accountability for, for someone to take over and say, okay, that's it, enough is enough. We don't want these headlines. We don't want this to happen anymore to kids. Where does that accountability start? Uh, it starts with the premier uh, and it moves very quickly to the, to the minister. Um, you know, and, and it, it's, the, it's, the, it's the message that gets sent uh, through the minister to the to the deputy minister, and you, you know, um, in this in this scenario, we've had the same uh, leadership uh, there for for a very long time in the ministry. Uh, lots of claims of transformation, and yet uh, we continue to see uh, these reports with with uh, shockingly low results. You know, I, I think uh, some of these numbers, you know, under the claims of of there being transformational change happening in this ministry. Uh, we're seeing numbers uh, go down, not go up. And so we're, we're seeing worse and worse results uh, from a ministry that's claiming that it's uh, engaged in, in transforming its practices. And uh, we continue to see uh, children die in the care of, of the minister. We, see, we continue to see children go missing while in the care of this minister. Uh, we continue to see reports from the representative of children and youth uh, that uh, you know, that are embarrassing for a minister that is claiming to be changing the system. And so uh, we need to have somebody who's in the job that's uh, serious about, uh, about uh, changing the system and serious about making sure that the most vulnerable children in our society, the children who have been let down by everybody, uh, have somebody that's there to look after them and that, that has a system that is prepared uh, to show up when it's uh, required to show up and and has a, and and do the paperwork when the paperwork's required to be done. You know, this was an audit report of uh, one uh, office uh, yeah. in uh, the East Fraser Valley. But I can tell you that part of the frustration that I experienced, part of the frustration that you've experienced reporting on this, is that this isn't um, just, you know, one office uh, in one part of the province. We When, when we talk about this is, this ministry, we get messages from all across the province, people that are exasperated that the exact same uh, culture exists in those offices. So, so part of the, the call for a, a new minister and a new deputy minister, new leadership here, is about finding somebody who is prepared to change the culture of this, this organization uh, so that it is oriented around the protection uh, of children. That, that's exactly what John Horgan said when he questioned the former minister demanding her resignation, he said, we need a minister that's prepared to look out for the children, not the institution. That's a direct quote. And that's the same standard that I'm holding this minister to. And that is the exact same standard that I'm holding Premier David Eby to. All right. Well, I, I hope to hear more about this so we can keep this in the headlines until some change really does happen. But thank you very much for your time this morning. I agree. Thank you very much. That's Adam Olson, BC Green Party MLA for Saanich North. How do you create that accountability? When you have an entire office where nobody was doing paperwork, nobody was doing home checks on children who are in foster care, that's more than one person. That's that's a lot of people who thought it was acceptable to not do the job, to not even do the paperwork. Like, where was the manager? Where was the person above that manager saying, listen, where's your paperwork? How come? Like, you can't just do that, right? There's an awful lot of people who turned a blind eye in that situation. And I just, how do you get to that point where so many people thought that that was 
an okay way of doing things or just thought, well, well, whatever, everybody else is doing it too. I don't understand that. When you're talking about children's lives being at stake, I don't know how you get to that point. Uh, And I would love to hear from you on this because we are trying to keep this story in the news until we see some some serious change happening. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We know that the people of Lytton want to start rebuilding their homes, right? And of course they do. They've been waiting since June of 2021 when the entire town was destroyed by wildfire. The complication is the archaeological work that is going on. And we wanted to learn more about that, including what they have found, which is quite remarkable, actually. So Peter Martell is the executive director of operations at AEW, which is the company doing that archaeological work, and joins us now. Peter, thank you for being here. Uh, No problem. Thank you for having me. First of all, how significant of an archaeological site is this? Uh, It's a very uh, significant uh, archaeological site, and the reason for that is because... um, According to the Entlacapmic, uh, Lytton was built on the site of an ancestral Entlacapmic village, uh, including several uh, burial sites. Can you give us an idea of what's been found so far? Yeah, I mean, there's been over 7,500 artifacts found, um, and uh, as well ancestral remains in four different locations. Uh, some of the artifacts uh, that have found uh, largely a lot of uh, projectile points, um, bowls, tools such as uh, awls and other things that were used to make clothing, and uh, birch bark rolls. So uh, quite, a, quite a variety of artifacts that have been logged and, and photographed. And how old are they? Do we know? Um, they're, they haven't been dated yet, but based on, um, other work that's been done on the Canadian plateau, it's, it's probably around, uh, the current sites that we're looking at are probably around 2,500 years old. Okay. So that is significant. Can you give us an idea of what, what the process is like? I know that many residents are concerned with how time consuming this is, but what is your work like? So initially in the spring, we were, we were doing the archaeological impact assessment for the village and the properties. And as part of that, um, you identify what the potential um, is for, for the different parts of the village. And then um, we basically uh, dig holes and, and screen the material that comes out of the holes uh, to log the artifacts. If uh, significant uh, artifacts are found through the archaeological impact assessment, they, they may choose to do additional excavations to, to further identify a site if the site's found, and then that would be called an excavation unit, which is uh, one meter by one meter uh, wide. Um, currently, we've done four excavation units in the village, and we're also making plans to um, mitigate the, uh, the, the ancestral remains that have been found as well. Okay, so when you do one of those units, then how how does that process work? What does that involve? It's basically a very careful dig, and at each layer um, within, as 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 they continue to excavate down through the through the unit, they they just basically end up um, um, logging uh, logging all of the artifacts that are found uh, through the process. So it's like and dusting then, off every layer. Uh, yeah, sort of, but not, 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 not quite dusting like you see on TV. I mean, they, uh, they dig until they find something, they log it, and then they continue to dig. And they take the, go th- the depth of the e, uh, excavation unit will depend on um, the number of artifacts that they're finding. Okay, and so given what has been found so far, then, Peter, how, how significant of a site do you think this is? Like, how much more work is to be done? Uh, there's, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm not an archaeologist, but I would say uh, about 90% of the work has been completed. Um, most of the work that we're doing now is just on heritage uh, monitoring. So as they're backfilling the properties um, and bringing them back up to grade, uh, we basically just have a technician on site to make sure that there are, are no chance finds uh, during that process. Right. Would you say the end is in sight then for residents who say, listen, we want to get to work on rebuilding? Yeah, but a lot of it, there's 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 some significant work to be done on certain parts of the village. But generally, 
um, the archaeology work is substantially complete, uh, aside from monitoring. Uh, there's going to be a lot of, um, there's going to be a fair bit of work to mitigate the, um, um, the ancestral remains that have been found. And then also there's been a few sites identified that are going to require additional work. Um, but, but if thinking from big picture, I would say um, probably approximately 90% complete. Okay, well, that's that's progress, and I would imagine Lytton residents are, are happy to hear that, though. They've also complained that there hasn't been enough communication. Would you say that there needed to be more of that? Oh, definitely um, could have had better communication. And, and you know, we sit on the Gumsheen Heritage Committee with the village of Lytton, the Heritage Branch, the, the contractors that are working on this project from the very beginning. So I think communication on that table has been very good, but obviously that information isn't getting out to the residents. Right. Okay. So what would you say to them now in terms of the work and what's happening? Uh, well, I, you, there's still work to be done, but depending on um, each property is going to be, some properties don't require any additional work and some properties will require some additional work. And so it's, it's hard to go out and uh, because each, each resident is going to face uh, a different situation. Some will be able to start rebuilding as soon as their lots are backfilled and others, uh, there may be a little bit of additional um, cultural heritage work that's required. And, and, that depend, and that's not case by case basis, but I, you know, there is definitely an end in sight. And uh, we've been doing archaeology work on this project um, since the start of remediation, and we've tried to create as much efficiency through the process as we could to minimize the impact on the residents. Right. They're obviously anxious to get back in there, though. So I understand as well there was like a spear point that was found there that was, what, 7,500 years old? Yeah, I think I think that's right. Yep. Wow. And uh, there's all kinds of... Uh, I've got a bit of a list in front of me here, and it's uh, it's quite impressive. Um, a number of spear points have been found, a lot of uh, other projectile uh, points, um, tools, um, bowls, awls for making clothes. And the interesting thing about these finds is that is it helps us understand the activities that were taking place um, at that time. So, for example, tool types can inform us on what people were doing. Um, and so, as I mentioned earlier, an awl is generally used uh, for creating clothing. A bowl would be used for preparing food. And, and uh, of course, a lot of the projectile points are for hunting. So. Right. But these are communities that obviously were in this area thousands of years ago. Yeah. Which sometimes we don't appreciate that enough, do we, Peter? Well, I think I've learned to appreciate it uh, in my role here. But I mean, before um, before I got involved with AEW, I, I would agree with you. All right. Well, listen, Peter, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. Take That's care. Peter Martell, Executive Director of Operations at AEW. That's the company that is undertaking the archaeological work at the community of Lytton. Now, you heard him say the work is 90% done. Those are the kinds of things that residents of Lytton want and need to hear because they are frustrated. They want to get back in there. They want to start rebuilding their homes. But the reason that it has been held up is that this work is being done and they're digging up things from thousands of years ago here and finding. They said they have found a lot of these things, including that spear point that is something like estimated to be 7,500 years old. Like that's phenomenal. But yes, people need to move things along. So the good news is that it's 90% done, a little bit more work doing to be done in some areas. But hopefully that means that residents in Lytton can start to think about uh, getting back to those homes and rebuilding. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.